and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're going to be talking about the movie Get Out by Jordan Peele of Key and Peele. If you've not seen this movie, we recommend you don't listen to this podcast. This is by far the most spoilery podcast we have ever done. I was obsessive about not finding anything else out about this movie before I saw it. And Morgan tried, but she was on American Twitter more. So she got a little <laughs> bit spoiled. But I mean, this is one of those films where they promote it as much as they can without letting you know anything about the film. So the premise is that a young black man named Chris goes to meet his white girlfriend's family for the weekend and it's a horror movie. And it's kind of like a satire about American liberal racism. But everything we say from this moment forward will be a spoiler. So, so stop So now. stop listening. This is obviously we love having listens, but um, stop listening now unless you've seen the movie and you need to see the movie because it's like one of the best movies that happens. <laughs> it's a broad <laughs> statement. <laughs> it's very good. Well, according to the like extremely unreliable metrics of RottenTomatoes.com, it is in the top six movies because it got 99% <laughs> and almost had 100%, but then someone cruelly gave it a negative review. I think it was Armand White. So he does not count. Maybe there okay. was one other person. Can you explain to our listeners who Armand White is? Armand White is a black film critic who is a deliberate troll and recently seems to have kind of gone off the rails. He wrote some, I think maybe it was this review. I didn't read it, but I saw about it on Twitter. Some like crazy thing about Trump and the alt-right and this movie that was all of the opposite opinions of There's what some... you should have. So anyway, if he is the one, then uh, we can just pretend that it has a 100 and is therefore obviously one of the best films of all time because that's how numbers work. Yeah, I always rate my films on numbers. Yes, clearly. Uh, I was just going to say this movie came out several weeks ago in the US, so if you are American, there's a high chance you have seen it already. If you haven't, it is presumably still in most theaters because it has made a ton of money. It came out this past weekend in the United Kingdom, which is why we are only doing this podcast now because we only just got the chance to see it, which was very exciting because it was great. And now we will spoil the whole thing. So this is basically kind of a body horror yeah. movie in a way. I mean, in the same way the Invasion of the Body Snatchers is body horror because it's... Yeah body horror in the sense that you're like a human soul living in a body and you want your body to be okay but it's psychological horror rather than being a movie about yeah. sort of guts yes it's not very violent at all in fact um until you get to the very end which has some satisfyingly bloody horror movie type violence where almost everyone dies as it should be but i think the fact that it's not that violent actually makes the film a lot more effective Although I've been recently just being crabby about violence in films in general, <laughs> so I was sort of like, I'm pleased. Yeah. I mean, it's a psychological this. horror where it's about um, people kind of leveraging social power over each other. Yes. If you are one of the three people listening to this who, for some reason, has not seen this film, what basically winds up happening is that Chris, the main character, senses that something weird is going on with this family who are like they're very rich um northwest american kind of waspy people what does wasp stand for 
white anglo-saxon protestant okay right because i always start with like white aryan and i'm like it's not aryan but it <laughs> no no yeah no. wasp is me yeah i know i, I know it's you but like i can never remember <laughs> okay so it's yeah anglo is the a okay and morgan is like the ultimate wasp morgan is the evil girlfriend in this movie it's true i mean to be honest all white ladies are kind of mm -hmm. like i sort of um even though i like promised myself to the moon goddess as a child so i will never be like taking a boyfriend home but like <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a good movie to watch if you're a white lady because it forces you to realize that you're like super terrible. Um, so very effective, very effective storytelling. <laughs> yeah, so it's really obvious from right away that the family is bad because you're watching a horror movie that is marketed as a horror movie. Yeah. And he shows up at this house and it's just creepy. Like there is... Lovable dad Bradley Whitford and like his yes. wife who's a creepy hypnotist but like in a very sort of chill you know a rich calming mother kind of way yeah which obviously Catherine makes Keener. it more disturbing yeah um who normally is lovable in everything or playing an unpleasant person in a very different way <laughs> than this um and then caleb landry jones plays her younger Son. brother yeah yeah so, um, so yeah so allison williams the girlfriend yeah playing the character Rose and then her brother Jeremy who um, is... and he's sort of the one who actually seems full-on what people would think of as racist rather than yeah. everyone else who's racist in like a more low-key sort of making weird comments about Obama kind of way yeah <laughs> like woke liberal yes. racism is like basically how people are describing it <laughs> yeah but he has a big big sort of scene over dinner where he just is very drunk and just goes all out um, asking Chris what sports he likes and then talking about his genetic makeup and all of this stuff that's very explicitly eugenicist in the way that the rest of the family would not engage in. And he's very good in that scene, which is funny because I only know him from X-Men First Class, but I guess he's grown up into a fine young actor. <laughs> <laughs> who is physically perfect for this type of role because he's got like a yes. scuzzy little moustache. So like he's the character who's voicing the horrible kind of seething racism beneath the whole of white supremacy and all the others are sort of shushing him because they're much classier and they don't want him to be talking about Chris's physique in a horrible, creepy way. Yes. There's a lot. Of, I mean, the whole underpinnings of the movie are weaving together eugenics and cultural appropriation because as the film progresses chris is introduced to the extended family because it turns out there was like a family reunion that weekend and it's all um, i think it's just like, a party yeah it's a party i don't think it's, um, i don't think they're all related i think it's yeah, just their circle yeah. of horrible rich yeah white... rich white people and like yeah. one of them has a black boyfriend who's like 30 years younger than her and it's really unsettling because i mean it's also kind of like this is the point where like jordan peele's kind of comedy background comes in because all of their interactions are like scary, but they're also funny as well because they're sort of punchlines on the kind of cultural norms and code switching and stuff. Because like he tries to interact with this guy and be like, oh, we're like the only black guys here. Isn't that weird? And like this guy does stuff like he doesn't know how to like fist bump. So he just like holds his <laughs> fist and stuff. <laughs> um, but he's basically, he's just acting really weird pod person weird but also kind of dressing and acting like an old white person as well. So it's really unsettling. And also the family has um a black maid and like a gardener who are there all the time and are also acting like pod people in a really disturbing way the black boyfriend guy is played by lakeith stanfield who is also on atlanta who is also in a film 
Short Term 12, which was the first major thing that Brie Larson did, which I cannot recommend highly enough. I think it's one of the best movies that's come out in the past It's on Netflix, years. right? Yeah, I think it's... Sh- I mean, it wasn't a Netflix movie, but I think it's on Netflix. Regardless, you should find it somewhere and watch it. And he plays... He could not play a more different character on Atlanta than in Short Term 12. And then this is also totally different. He's a, He was in Selma, too, actually. He's the kid who gets shot in Selma. I mean, I don't remember anyone apart from the main actors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it was wild because even though I know he has incredible range because I've seen him in enough things where he's playing completely different characters. In Atlanta, he's essentially this perpetually stoned just really weird dude he's really really funny and in short term 12 he's a foster kid living in a short-term home and in this he's playing this very strange white man from the 50s in a young black man's body and you're watching it and even if you don't have that context it just feels so strange (laughs) (laughs) and it's just sitting there like oh no this is wrong which of course it is because he's been body snatched so yeah the payoff as the film progresses sometimes when he's interacting with he, there's a couple of scenes between Chris the main character and the family's maid where she basically like starts to cry but like is acting like nothing's wrong and you can tell I mean basically the implication is for most of the film you're like definitely these people have been hypnotized and um, Chris is actually hypnotized by the mother in this like really disturbing scene which is where the horror kind of kicks off because he sends her to what she describes as the sunken place. He's in his body, but like he's far below and he's trapped while she can like do whatever with his psyche. And like the kind of turning point towards the end of the film is when you find out that what's actually happening is they're kind of the daughter Rose is being used as like a honeypot to basically entrap black men, bring them back to the family, and then um, they go through like this process where an old white person's brain is like swapped into their head. So the person whose body it originally was is trapped in the sunken place watching someone else pilot their body around and acting like super weird. So it kind of it explains all this really bizarre stuff like like it turns out that the gardener and the maid are both actually Rose's grandparents who've been like swapped into these people's bodies but there's this remnant of the original person still there like freaking out and wanting to be heard and stuff. And then the final scenes of the movie are a bloodbath as Chris tries to escape with help from his friend who we didn't actually mention but there was like a kind of a like a comedy friend who kind of seems like he's in a Simon Pegg Edgar Wright movie who get called up on the phone and he'll just be like you just need to get out of the house like this is the stupidest fucking idea you've ever had stay out of the white girl's house this is gonna all end in disaster and it does but he's very funny (laughs) well it's a great really effective tool because he's essentially an expository function that character who then serves a very important function at the end of the movie because he helps him escape. But really what he's there for is for Chris to be able to call someone and articulate that he's freaked out and say, here are the things that I figured out. And so that could be really, really boring. But because this guy is really funny, it is kind of a release of tension from this unbelievable weirdness of what is going on, which is also what it is for Chris. He just needs to be able to talk to someone who is not an annoying white person. <laughs> yeah. And it's um, also like really genre savvy from a horror movie perspective, because a lot of modern horror films have a lot of problems trying to integrate phones 
into the story, right? Because like, unless yeah. you have a story where people are trapped in a forest with no phone signal, which a lot of movies have to be now, <laughs> um, yes. you have to like figure out a way to have phones in the story without it just being like, we don't have signal. And in this, they've got this dual thing where the maid slash grandmother unplugs his phone so it's running out of charge. So the fact that his phone is running out of charge is like something you're constantly consciously thinking about because you know it's intentional. So they're intentionally cutting him off. Um, but also it kind of plays into the sort of dynamics between him and the white family because he knows that there's all these concerns and he's voicing them to his friend and his friend is also really kind of horizontal savvy as well in that sort of Edgar Wright movie way because he he's just like well you're being hypnotized they've hypnotized and kidnapped all these black people and it's funny because like it's presented from this funny character's perspective but you're also like get out of the house this is definitely what's happening <laughs> so the phones phone thing works really well and I feel bad for horror filmmakers who have to figure out what to do with phones. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. No one can figure out what to do with phones in general on screen, but particularly for horror purposes, it's pretty brutal because there are, are really only so many options. But because he is stuck in this environment where people are actively trying to control him as cut him off from the outside world they have a pretty good mechanism for coping yeah. with it and they also sort of clever. incorporate law enforcement in as well because that's yes you know at the beginning of the movie there's um uh, rose and chris hit a deer in their car and there's sort of an interaction where the cop is acting really hostile to chris and then rose sort of stands up to him and like uses her white privilege yada 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 um and it's all like it's like this kind of weird uncomfortable situation where like he knows how to deal with it and she doesn't really, so she's kind of going a bit too far and it does work out okay, but you can see how it might not work out okay. But it's sort of presenting her as positive image of someone who is aware of the situation more than her parents are. Which is why yeah. it's even better when it turns out that she's completely in on the whole thing and is a huge monster. <laughs> yeah, and that scene, there's a lot in this movie that once you know the whole deal in retrospect seems really clever. Yeah, And that scene is so smart because... On the one hand, you watch it and you think, oh dear, she doesn't know what is going on. And you can tell that he is kind of thinking that too, but because she's his girlfriend, he is both frustrated but also thinks that she's well-intentioned, right? But when you look at it in retrospect, she's clearly both putting on a show and also doesn't want the cop to have both of their licenses at the yeah. same time. <laughs> because she's trying to, like, isolate him. Because she's selected him because he's an orphan. He has, like, one close friend who she doesn't take seriously. So when her when his friend does, towards the end of the movie, kind of call up and be like, where's Chris? What's happened? And she's kind of sending him a fake phone call, being like, oh, I don't know where he's gone. He left two days ago. He was acting really paranoid. And he, she's trying to, like, gaslight him as well. And when he starts to be doubtful and try to record her, then she just basically tries to seduce him over the phone. Is like, oh, you've always wanted to fuck me. Like, it's like the ultimate dream is to like fuck a white girl. Um, and it's just like all the dynamics are just so perfectly thought out and really disturbing and well observed. <laughs> well, and the, um, I mean, if, as with most good genre films, it's all the elements of play into real life stuff. So at the very beginning of the movie, when you're first introduced to these people, she 
tells him that, you know, of course she hasn't told her parents that he's black. Why should she? And he is the first black boyfriend she's had, so she says. And he's sort of like, well, maybe you should have said something about this. Um, and then he finds this uh, box of photos of her with all of these other black men who have been her prey in the past, essentially. Which is useful information in the context of what is going on in this movie. I mean, it's really disturbing and freaks you out because clearly something's going on, but also is germane to things that happen in real life also in terms of just women who fetishize black men in that way. And often then will lie about this being their pattern of behavior. I think it was on... um the pop culture happy hour episode on this, which was really good that uh, was Gene Demby was saying like, this is the ultimate nightmare <laughs> to like find that out and be like, Oh no, like I've just, you know, the object of this sort of fetishization. Yeah. But of course in this, it's twisted around to being a concrete source of threat as opposed to just. Yeah. And there's I a mean, really amazing yeah. sort of visual punchline kind of right after you find out that she's in on it as well kind of once Chris has uh, kind of partially escaped and you see this scene where she's hanging out in her room and she's drinking milk with a straw <laughs> and eating Cheerios so the milk and the Cheerios don't touch and the colours don't mix she's looking up NBA prospects to find out who to get next and she's listening to the Dirty Don't Dancing tra- soundtrack, which is like the most stereotypical, like basic white girl concept of all time. <laughs> and also she's changed her outfit. So like in the other scenes, she's wearing kind of more um, sort of normal, like relaxed young woman, kind of not quite hipster, but like normal women clothes, right? And then once she's kind of gone for the full transformation, they've kind of scrubbed off her makeup. So she looks more lizardy. She's got her hair up in a ponytail and she's wearing this incredibly crisp white shirt that looks kind of like a Ralph Lauren mum. Like that's got that it's got that kind of horse look, like a horse lady look. <laughs> well she's wearing like jodhpurs. Oh yeah, like, yeah. She's wearing I mean, like, yeah, it's all very it's, it's it really is a look. I yeah. mean they went all out. Um yeah, and casting Alice Williams in this was so smart. My one true contribution to the discussion of this film as a young white lady is that I have watched every episode of Girls in which Alison Williams has, you know, appeared in most of them. And she plays a complete nightmare person on Girls. Very similar character to the character in this film, I would say, although not a, not quite a psychopath. Pretty close in many ways. Um, by far the worst character on the show, and there are a lot of terrible characters. <laughs> but she has got, had the worst writing. Actually, some of the seasons um, have been fine, and then a couple seasons in the middle, the writing was so bad that it was a nightmare. And the thing about her as an actress, this show taught us, was that when she has good writing, she's fine. She's maybe not going to win an Oscar, but like she's perfectly effective. And when the writing is bad, she cannot execute like at all. Um, and so 
during the like long run of this show, it got to the point where this character, every time she appeared on screen, not because of Alison Williams, but because this whole situation was such a nightmare, I would just be like, get away from me. Like, I don't want to see Marnie anymore. Like, please make this stop. And so then when I saw she was cast in this, I was like, that's interesting because I don't think of her as like a particularly effective actress. But I don't think she is a genius actress, but I think a lot of that was just bad writing. And she is so effective in this because she is just this, like, I mean, I I don't think she seems fine in real life, but she is really good at playing just these horrible bitches. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, she was a sort of facade of a well-meaning but clueless person. Yeah. And then when she turns and turns out to be evil, it's great. Yes. It's all very well cast, like Bradley Whitford. I think before we started recording, you were kind of just saying they cast people deliberately who we think of as like nice, like a nice yes. dad character. It's like Bradley Whitford is perfect because he's the West Wing guy that everyone loves, you know. So it's pointing directly into the heart of who they want to skewer. <laughs> yes. And I mean, Catherine Keener, I felt... I, it's cause I didn't watch the West Wing. I mean, I certainly have seen him and stuff and like him, but for me, Catherine Keener was the more, more effective in that way because I, she is such a sort of indie film icon and she's been in so many things and she is really, really good at projecting this unbelievable warmth without it being showy. And she does a really good job in this of using that to a really creepy effect because she is playing this sort of fake, or I guess she is a real psychiatrist, but what she's doing with the hypnosis is kind of fake therapy. And so she's asking him sort of questions about himself, both when they are sort of sitting around as a family and then in this weird hypnosis scene where she is kind of giving off some of that warmth that she characteristically has, but it feels weird. It's kind long. of like staticky. She's got like yeah. a weird staticky kind of sticky. Yeah. It's gross. And <laughs> really you disturbing. Just, <laughs> ugh. It, you can tell there's something off about them, mm. but it's difficult to pinpoint what it is until things start getting really bad. Because he seems like just a blowhard. Like that yeah. kind of the guy. The dad is the least threatening guy because he I, just seems like an embarrassing dad. Yes. Like I have met those people many times. Like this, he literally says, I would have voted for Obama a third term. Like here, let me show you all my rich man things and make embarrassing comments. Like, yep, I know that guy. <laughs> like That's a recognizable person. But there is this weird kind of edge underneath it, but it's hard to exactly identify it and certainly if you were in that situation your automatic thought would not be this person is going to steal my brain so (laughs) but once again what we've learned from this movie is that you should not trust members of the mental health profession (laughs) (laughs) it's what i've discovered from my long history of or indeed like medicine in general like i was while i was watching this I was thinking a bit about um, Gore Verbinski's new horror movie, A Cure for Wellness, which I saw a couple of weeks ago and is very opulent and expensive. It's basically kind of a retelling of Dracula, but with um, Jason Isaacs as like a creepy doctor who runs a spa in the mountains. And it's about 14,000 hours long and it's not super great, 
<laughs> but I was just like the whole thing is kind of a similar scenario where it's someone sort of being trapped and gaslit and then there's like the option of body horror and this is just so much better because that just fundamentally doesn't work when like your main character is an obnoxious white guy like they are in that whereas in this you have this character who's just supernaturally engaging I mean, it's partly the writing and it's partly the actor Daniel Kaluuya, who's just incredible because making this film, they're knowing they're going for as wide an audience as possible on like subject matter that's seen as incredibly controversial and difficult to communicate. And Daniel Kaluuya's performance, like he's very funny, but he's also, it made me think a lot about the level of kind of detailed social observation you see in different genres because you really only see that level of detail and inviting the audience to empathize in either like literary fiction drama type indie movies or psychological horror and the rest of the time it's kind of mostly a lot more shallow or explicit and this whole film is just inviting the audience to kind of join him and being like what the fuck's going on but the what the fuck stuff is on extremely specific little social problems that he is able to like point out without it being really explicit but it always works I don't know. It's quite hard to articulate, but it's very well done. <laughs> no, I think that's right. And it is simultaneously, I mean, you obviously have to have some understanding of race in America to understand what this movie is doing. But it's, the movie makes clear enough that there's just something weird going on if they're treating him weirdly, that while it's not like you could watch this movie and not read it politically, like it's you could also they do a good job of getting the stuff across purely on a mood level, so that then you can just feel the weirdness and then also think about the stuff. Like I'm not trying to disconnect these two things yeah. because they are clearly very intimately related, but I think like I, I was reading some interview with Jordan Peele and he said like I've seen this movie in movie theaters literally full of white people and they all cheer at the end when the bad guys die like you just want the bad guys to be killed no matter what like that's yeah the human i mean that was that was what it was like right? in my showing in scotland which is a very white country <laughs> so. yes. which is what is so frustrating always about hollywood's refusal to make movies about non-white people because if you can sort of do the marketing right and make, make good fucking that are movies, good, like the idea that people can't know. empathize, it's like it's clearly untrue. Because this is like the ultimate proof of that. Because right, like this and Hidden it's, Figures. Is I mean, Hidden Figures is a nice feel-good movie, and there are white people who want to help the struggle, right? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't go overboard with that, but there definitely are. Like, you can yeah. watch that as a white person and be like, "Well, Kevin Costner was yeah." They really made nice they made up a Kevin ladies. Costner character, <laughs> right? But yeah, but this is literally just like every single character. There, is just a fucking monster, right? So if, <laughs> if this, this movie can has succeed, made, like a hundred plus million dollars, I think <laughs> you they could make some other films. And I think he was saying also in an interview I was reading that he's really interested in doing, I think he called it like his, this genre he's decided he's now making films in like social thrillers, which I thought was a really interesting term mm. and idea because obviously he is very interested in engaging with these political ideas and 
current which they did in Key and Peele like a lot because a yes, lot of the kind of most viral so. Key and Peele segments were stuff like the anger translator yes I mean genius yeah. incredible um, but it is much easier to get people into a movie that is also a horror film than a serious drama about racism hmm. right and he and also the seems- audience like the audience for I'm gonna see a serious drama of racism is like people who are basically the family from this movie where it's like we're definitely <laughs> like very we're great we're really liberal and we know that racism's bad so we're gonna watch this movie that's you know really morally good for you whereas this movie is just like well, well fuck you <laughs> <laughs> right. and not that art is going to you know change a bunch of people's no. minds about everything but if you do want to engage with a really wide audience about stuff doing so in a genre film like this is a pretty smart way to approach that because more people are going to see it which isn't to say that this is a better way or the only way but it's definitely a pretty effective vehicle especially if you can get a hundred plus million dollars worth of tickets sold in the first three weeks or something i mean this movie has been huge i'm really curious to see what daniel kalua does next i mean he's He's like he's signed on Panther. for like a bunch. He's in, I know, oh, believe me, I know yeah. he's in Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't have the cast list of Black Panther like tattooed onto my eyeballs. Memorized, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, but like while I was watching the movie, I didn't realize it was him because I'd kind of, because I'd been avoiding all the publicity, I'd only seen like the picture of him crying. So when yes. I, I was watching the movie, I was thinking, oh, who's this like amazing American indie actor who's come out of nowhere? And then I looked him up and I was like, this is someone I liked when I was like 17 years old. Because I was an obsessive <laughs> Skins fan as a teenager. So I like remember being like so impressed and envious of the teenagers who wrote in this show. And he was one of the people who wrote, you know, he wrote one of the episodes and he co-wrote a few of the others and he was in the show. So he is among this cast of people who I've been internet stalking for years. So I'm now officially the same as the idiots who watched House MD and didn't realize it was Hugh Laurie. <laughs> I believe he also has had a screenplay accepted at the Sundance Writers Lab. Interesting. I did Which not know like that. Which is the most prestigious thing of that type. And I just looked him up on IMDb and I had seen this only hours ago and forgotten. He is going to be in Steve McQueen's next film, hmm? which is called Widows, which is the most incredible sounding thing that I've heard about what in some it? time. This is a film, the... Logline on IMDb is when a crew of crooks are killed during a robbery, their widowed spouses pick up where they left off. Oh my god. The cast list is Daniel Kluya, Liam Neeson, Elizabeth Debicki, Michelle Rodriguez, Viola Davis, Andre Holland, and Cynthia Erivo. I have heard about this movie. I have heard about this movie. I am sure it was from me. Andre Holland plays one of the widows. It's going to be a beautiful experience for all of us. Julian Flynn wrote the screenplay. I can't... No, I definitely have heard about this because I remember being like, wow. But also, Liam Neeson is going to be in a good movie? I guess he'll die soon. So... Or maybe he'll be the bad guy. Actually, no, he was in Silence, which I guess... Yes. Yes. He does a lot of bad movies, though, that man. He does... Oh, yeah. Yes, he certainly does. Um, Yeah, Julian Flynn and Steve McQueen co-wrote this screenplay. I... I cannot... I cannot imagine. Yeah. They should so, just replace the girl with the dragon tattoo sequel remake movie with a ne- another release of this film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
this is getting made anyway. So yeah. I think they're doing just fine. Um, but yeah, just wild. Unbelievable. Well, Viola I'm... Davis gonna punch some people. <laughs> great. Um, anyway, that's what he has coming up. Congrats, Daniel. Well done. Fine. Yep. Um, well done to the man who, for years, I thought of only as Posh Kenneth and did not realize he had a name because all of the Skims <laughs> characters only have their names, apart from uh, Nick Holt, who was already famous, so he got a name. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, he was really great. And that picture of him crying doesn't look anything like him. So it was very disorienting when you actually watch. Oh my god, he's such a good it's... crier. Oof. There was a lot of there was a lot of extremely effective yeah. crying action in this movie. Uh, very upsetting. Yeah, he was very he was very good, and he is our age, which is terrifying. So yeah, well, I mean, I think both you and I are equally as successful. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we have a podcast that has several hundred <laughs> I, listeners. I think so. it's more than that. I think we're <laughs> above several hundred at this point, which is exactly the same as starring in one of the top grossing films of the year. Yeah. Do we have anything else to say about this movie? I feel like that may be about it. It's really good. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, we're going we're gonna to link to yeah. some good stuff in the notes. We've got um, New York Magazine did a kind of interesting series of interviews with uh, interracial couples who oh just watched God, the movie together. Oh my God, I did not see this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which was an interesting piece. Oh, I, sh- I should have linked it to you. Yeah, they did that, which was really... Like kind of really interesting conversations there and it also kind of made me think that even though i don't necessarily think that art can make a huge amount of political difference um rather than just being used to kind of articulate your feelings um this movie clearly is having like a huge fucking impact because people are watching it and then just like reinventing their worldview like these some of these interviews i was like well okay this is uh this has worked very well i hope jordan peele has good fun being taught oh, in media studies classes yeah. for the rest I of mean, his life this movie literally <laughs> is going to be taught at universities which yeah. is hilarious because i cannot imagine that when he was writing the screenplay he was sitting back thinking ah yes and one day at harvard <laughs> they will be watching this and writing papers on it Yes. From the recent maker of the film Keanu, starring Keanu Reeves as a cat. <laughs> oh, yes. Life takes its twists and turns. But yeah, we will we will link to a couple of uh, relevant articles yes, um, in the show out. notes. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, or on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. Thanks. Bye.